good morning, Hillside Church. I'm glad that you are joining us as we fix our attention on Jesus this morning. Can you please open in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10? We do this every week. We join with each other, we sing, we take up our Bibles, and we consider what God is saying to us. Because if we truly believe what we say we believe, not only should the words of God affect us, but they should inform literally everything that we do. And this is difficult. I've spoken to you before about how difficult it is for me to reconcile uh, with some of the boundaries that God places on my life through his teaching. My politics, my opinions, my relationships, my finances, even my time, they would all probably look a lot different if I wasn't a Christian, if Jesus wasn't my king. So the question is why? Why do we listen to this book? Is it because it lines up with how we think that we should live our life? Is it a manual for how to be successful? Or are these instead the words of the living God, the one who created my very being? The one who has loved us so deeply that he sent his one and only son. Will we believe him? Will we trust that he knows what is best for us? Or will we act like our first parents, Adam and Eve, looking at the garden tree and decide that we are the best ones to determine what's right from what's wrong? Sisters and brothers, if you are like me, you are probably tired and you are probably weary. You might have some real sadness or just a low-grade anxiety about everything that's going on in the world. Uh, Like me, you're probably worn out on trying to be the captain of your own life, of making those big decisions between what's the right and what's the wrong thing to do. Do you know what Jesus says to that? He calls us to come to him. All you who are weary and who are heavily burdened, to trust him, and to join into the safe relationship of love and trust that Jesus has with his Father. And in his arms, he promises that he will rest you. So wherever you are this morning, uh, please stand as we read God's word together. And may he rest us as we do. We'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest of the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, 
would you teach us what this means? We need your rest. Spirit of God, we believe that you inspired this to be written. And 2,000 years ago, you knew that today we would be considering this together. You say in your word that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and we need wisdom. And so, God, may we take you into account as we live in these bizarre times and as we make decisions in response to them. Lord, help us to come to your word this morning humbly. May we consider others more importantly than ourselves. And may we not get so caught up in our passion for what we believe that we end up missing you. So we pray these things, O oh Lord, by Jesus' precious name. Amen. I don't know if you are familiar with the letter to the Hebrews, but it is just a beautiful thing to read. And as you take just about an hour to read it, you'll walk away with a rich affection for Jesus. It was written to the earliest Christians as they were sorting out how Jesus related to their Jewish cultural history. How does Jesus fit in with Moses and Abraham and the temple high priests? Well, the Coles Notes version is that Jesus is the better version of them all. You know, Moses, Abraham, David, the high priest, the sacrificial lamb, the law, the covenant, all of those things, the law and the prophets and the writings, all were pointing toward Jesus. They were all setting us up. They were preparing us for him. He makes sense of all of it. And now here we're in chapter 10 of Hebrews, and the writer has just finished off an amazing sermon where he makes the point of all that. He makes the case that Jesus is the better version of everything. If you read that section, that sermon, I think you'd be convinced of it as well. And so this section that we just read, this is the summing up of that sermon, which basically he's saying, therefore, because Jesus is better because he went to the cross to conquer Satan, sin, and death. And because of God's great love for us, we now have the opportunity for a closeness with God that we could never have dreamed of. So let us draw near to him. Let us get close to him. Put your trust in what Jesus has done, and then you can have the confidence to come before our loving Father with a conscience that's wiped clear. Isn't this great? I hope that this is good news for you. I hope this feels like good news because it is. Wherever you are, this morning you have the opportunity to praise the King and to have him present with you. No matter what you did this week, no matter what you did last night, can you believe that? Just, just stop for a minute and consider this, that the Lord God creator of the universe has made himself available and has come to be present with you. This, this is the hope that we profess from Christmas to Easter and then from Easter to Christmas that God is faithful to his promise. His promise was that we will be his people and he will be our God, that he will dwell among us. 
that he will transform and renew our hearts and our world in a way that reflects his unimaginable love. That ultimately, death will have no hold on us. It will not be the last word on our lives. Our hope is everlasting. We will be with God, and he will be with us forever and ever and ever. And I hope that this is stirring you with joy where you are, because it is for me. This is our hope, my friends. This is our goal. I spoke with you a few weeks ago from Hebrews 3 about how we need to encourage one another so that we will actually make it to that goal so that we keep running the race. The author of Hebrews picks up this theme. We started in three, now we're back in 10. And he says, we need to encourage one another. Um, and here, he actually says, encourage one another, and he has an interesting application for that. And for us, it's worth taking the time to think about this morning. It's this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Because of COVID, I have found myself watching more Netflix and movies and TV than I normally would have, or probably should be. But if you're like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed how weird it is to see people in crowds I know sometimes I'll see people in a pre-COVID show hugging or shaking hands and my reflexes kind of glitch out a bit because we've been attuned to the social distancing thing for quite a while now. And maybe you felt this way when we read this passage, meet together. Nope, 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 can't, can't be talking about meeting together. Yikes, pandemic, COVID. That's my natural reaction. And I think we're probably very quick to put an asterisk on this verse to immediately start thinking about the exceptions to the rule. Exceptions to us meeting together. But this passage doesn't give us exceptions. And this goes in other passages too. Romans 13 tells us also to submit to the government. And we immediately start thinking about the exceptions to that command. But again... We're given no exceptions to the rule. So obviously right now, these things kind of might seem mutually exclusive. My point isn't that there is no room for exceptions in Scripture, but instead we should ask why the Bible doesn't give them here. Is that an important thing to notice? Did the early church just not have any exceptional circumstances? Is that why? Well, interpreter N.T. Wright doesn't think that that can be the case. He thinks that rather than people being lazy or just bored of church, that they'd stopped attending here in Hebrews because they were being persecuted. The Romans were hunting them down, and the best way to fly under the radar was to stop going to church, to stop gathering together. This is important for us to think about. Imprisonment and death was not worthy of an exception clause to the author of Hebrews. In fact, he's reprimanding them for being more concerned about their own lives than they were about the gathered church. So, the question for us this morning is why? 
Why does the author of Hebrews seem not to prioritize individual safety of the church members? Well, I think the answer is that church isn't for you. (laughs) Stick with me. I'm going to explain this a little bit more here. But the answer, I think, for us is church isn't for you. It isn't for me. It isn't for you. Um, We'll explain this. But by the way, when I say church, uh, this essentially just means a gathered people. When Israel was wandering in the desert with God, he called them the church in the wilderness. As I'm sure you've heard it said, uh, church is the people, not the building. But church actually isn't just the same as simply being with other Christians either. The gathered part is important. It means that the church is multiple Christians who have been gathered by someone for a purpose. And in Hebrews here, the meeting that the verse is talking about is actually some sort of worship service. Um, Kind of like what we read about in Acts chapter 2, where the Christians gathered to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, communion, and prayer. It's a time where together they're reminded about why they're together. What makes them different from the rest of their culture? Now, the other part of what the church is has to do with what its job is, how it works. In Paul's letter to the Romans and to the Corinthians, he tells them that as a people, they're kind of like a human body, which, let's admit, is kind of a weird picture, but it's a really helpful one. His point is that every person in the church has a unique part to play. And more importantly, if one part of the body isn't operating like it should, or if it never shows up, the rest of the body suffers. Those of you who experience a disability or loss of function in part of your body know what this is like. To have part of your body not working When it's not working like it should, it affects how you go about your life. And this is how we're supposed to think about the church. This is how we're supposed to think about Hillside. Hillside Church is only Hillside Church. It's only able to accomplish God's full purpose when each of us is doing our job. When each of us is trusting in God and following him using our gifts in the way he asks us to. And this, this is what I mean when I say that the church isn't for you. This church needs you. More specifically, we need each other. I need you. Suzanne needs you. Levi needs you. Carol needs you. Little Soren needs you. Bill needs you. Amy needs you. Derwin needs you. This church needs you because you are part of the body. Hillside needs you, and Coquitlam needs Hillside because they need Jesus. And as wild as it seems, God decided that the way he would reach the world is through little groups of gathered people like us. Like it or not, Hillside will not be the hillside Jesus calls us to be without you. 
in the last 200 years, we've moved as a society to become a lot more individualistic, especially in our faith. Some of that has been good. Uh, There was a point in history where there was such a focus in the church on the structure, the hierarchy, and the organization that the individual Christian didn't even really have to think about their own relationship with God. Just show up on a Sunday and you're golden. But it might be that if we were here, we may have swung really far in this other direction. And the consequence of that is, for me, I might start to think that I can follow Jesus on my own. My relationship with God is personal, and I go to church because it helps me in my personal walk with God. I'm not denying that that's true and that's important, but it is actually dangerous to think that we can do it on our own. We need to wrestle with the fact that nowhere in the Bible is there such a thing as a Christian on their own. In the biblical history of the church, when people become Christians, they get added to other Christians and start meeting with them. It is clear that the way that we grow as a follower of Jesus is through our relationships with other Christians. This is going to clash with our independent way that we like to live our lives. I need to rely on somebody else to grow? Like After all, the American dream that we pursue in Canada is that Through grit and hard work, we can go from rags to riches on our own. Don't need any help from anyone else. For a minute, let's rewind uh, to before COVID times. You can probably remember it. The spirit of individualism was, of course, already affecting us then. Do you know, when sociologists study church participation, what they classify as a regular church attender is somebody who attends once every three weeks. Um, For me, I I grew up in a culture where it may have been something like yours. Not only did you never miss church, but you also didn't get a haircut on a Sunday. But things have shifted. And again, we're not here to romanticize the past. Not all that glitters is gold. But when I look at my own life and the shifts that happen in my own thinking, I've realized that my perspective on church participation shifts drastically depending on whether I view my role as a giver or as a receiver. When I view the church, when I view Hillside as for me, I find it way easier to let it slide, to not show up. How come? Well, I'm a little bit more lax when it comes to myself. I know me. I think I'll be all right. And hey, even if it does cause me harm, serves me right. But I'm the one who got hurt. We're normally pretty good at taking risks when they just involve us. We're pretty good even at letting other people make big risks because it's their life, their choice. So the decision to take my kids to soccer practice instead of going to church or to stay out late because it's only church in the morning, or just to go out on a hike because the mountains are my church. Well, those decisions are really easy if, after all, the church was a benefit for me at its main purpose. The church was doing a service for me. But what if my absence actually harms the body? 
What if Hillside can't be what God called it to be without me showing up? Is my late night out worth harming the gathered church at Hillside? Here in Hebrews, the message is clear. The reason you're not supposed to stop meeting together is because you're supposed to be there encouraging and spurring each other on to love and good deeds, to fulfill God's mission for the church. And that is actually so valuable that it's apparently worth risking our very lives. Um, A couple of years ago, I was driving down from a Soyuz uh, after dark, and my brother was with me, as was Mark. Uh, Mark is a man my family cares for. Uh, He experiences some fairly significant mental disability, and uh, just a great guy, and he's uh, a blessing to have as part of our family. Uh, anyways, we were driving down from a Soyuz. We were on our way home, probably about 10 minutes outside of Princeton. Some of you might be familiar with that stretch of road. Uh, it's quite deserty. Uh, it's flat. And importantly, it's not lit. We were cruising along at normal highway speed. And then suddenly, about 20 feet in front of us, a huge black bear ran out onto the road. It was bigger than my car. I slammed on the brakes uh, with everything in me. There's just to the ground. And we had to actually swerve to avoid hitting the bear. Of course, the car felt like it was about to lose control. Uh, The car and I were kind of interacting and reacting to each other, swerving back and forth as it tried to stabilize. And I tried to regain control of the vehicle. While this was happening, though, poor Mark in the back didn't have a category for what was happening. And he just began to yell out, Our job moved not just simply uh, to stabilizing the car, but it moved from that to also caring for Mark, assuring him that we would be okay, while at the same time, with my hands firmly gripped on that wheel, making sure that it would be okay. This is a little bit like the Christian life. And I think this is something like what the NIV translators were trying to capture when they chose the word unswervingly in our passage here. The writer seems to say that in order to make it to the goal, we need to be reminded of our hope. When the world seems to be going chaotically, we need to be here to remind each other that things are going to be okay. And we also need to, together, grip that steering wheel and keep our vehicle from swerving right off the road. Ultimately, We know things are going to be okay because he who promised that they would be is faithful. And he says that this is all the more important as we see the day, like the end, the finish line approaching. As the world becomes more chaotic, we need more and more to be encouraging each other of the hope of Christ's return and the renewal of all things. The author Drew Johnson has a new book about the practices that God asks us to do, like communion, baptism, singing, gathering together. And I love the picture that he describes. Uh, According to Drew, we might not always totally understand why God asks us to do something, at least not fully. And he thinks this is kind of like the classic 1984 movie, The Karate Kid. Do you remember that movie? Uh, Young Daniel wants to learn karate from his old master, Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi agrees on one condition, on a deal, that Daniel trust him. Really, really trust him. 
and do what he's told. Daniel agrees, of course, he wants to learn karate. But then something strange happens. He starts having to do chores for Mr. Miyagi, waxing his car, wax on, wax off, painting the fence up and down, sand the deck, left circle, right circle. Not only does he have to do the chores, but he's told to do them so specifically. At one point, Daniel gets so frustrated. He cannot understand how this could possibly relate to karate. He's just being abused by Mr. Miyagi. He's doing all his chores for free. And finally, after months of all this work, and just as Daniel's about to quit, Mr. Miyagi pulls back the curtain on what's been going on. Wax on, and he blocks a hit. Slowly, it dawns on Daniel that the time, all this time, he has been conditioning for a skill he did not know that he needed. And he wouldn't completely understand that he needed it until he actually had the muscle memory for it. This might be a silly example. Uh, but Drew Johnson thinks this is a little bit like our spiritual practices. Like something as simple as us gathering together. That meeting regularly together is actually conditioning our muscle memory for something we don't know we yet need. And I think he's right. You see, the Bible tells us that our day-to-day -day lives, our mundane to-do lists, should be treated as acts of worship. Your job is one of the ways that you worship God. He gives value to the tiniest details of our lives and calls them worship. And at the same time, he says that we also need to remember that transcendent, that worship is not only what we do in our day-to-day, -day, but it also involves sacramental things and practices and recognition of the holy God through singing, preaching, and being together. Worship is ordinary and it's transcendent. And for us, Sunday mornings is kind of where this ordinary and the transcendent intersect. We take a break from our ordinary week, which is worship, and remember the transcendent God as a gathered people, which is worship. And in so doing, Sunday builds muscle memory. It builds muscle memory for the hope of the future. The day that's in verse 25 this, this is a day when we, as God's people, will be gathered as the fully united, fully realized church. When we will most truly be with God and we will most truly be his people. Free from the constraints of the effect of sin. So our weekly Sunday is the dress rehearsal for one day when we are eternally with God. Now, will we be prepared for that ultimate gathering if we are never experiencing it here? Will the people in our church remember that that is our hope if we're not regularly part of their lives to remind them? Especially in the midst of our present chaos, the chaos of public health, of politics, of our own emotions, we need to be reminding them of the beautiful truth. The truth that 
no matter who wins the election, no matter how long this pandemic lasts, no matter how hopeless tomorrow morning feels, the Lord is coming. Right now, we sit in a time of pandemic, and it's at great risk to gather together. So what do we do? It's not just a risk to ourselves, but also to others. And I can't give you an answer for what you ought to do here. But the Holy Spirit can. And so I think you need to spend some time with God and ask him to guide you. For right now, meeting together will look different than it used to. But each of us need to consider the principle of what God is saying in his word. That no matter what my feelings are about my own well-being, whatever your feelings are about your own well-being, the church is not for you. The church, Hillside, needs you to show up, whatever showing up looks like right now. Perhaps that is on Zoom. I don't know. I want you to know uh, that we are starting up our small groups again in two weeks' time. Some of these might be in person, some might be over video, but I would urge you to join one if you haven't already, because they need you. You can go to our website uh, or send me a note directly and we'll get you connected, but you should know each of our leaders are trusted, godly, and wise. And as a church, we trust them to lead each group well. Whatever it looks like for you to follow God's guiding in this, I guarantee that it will look like making a sacrifice. Because living for others will always mean making a sacrifice. For some of you, this might mean that you actually change your bubble to include those six people in your small group so that you can meet together for church or during a midweek gathering. It's a sacrifice. For some of you, this might mean you actually wear a mask when you come to church to sing on Sunday so that other people will feel safe to meet together. As a people, we will have to keep being creative in order to keep encouraging one another and to keep ourselves unswervingly en route. But let us remember the muscle memory that God is developing in us. Let us remember that for the Holy Spirit, gathering together was so important that it warranted potential persecution and death. These aren't easy things to think through and apply, but the Holy Spirit intends to rest you by your trusting him through this. Friends, the greater Vancouver area is well documented to be an incredibly lonely and isolated region. Our community and our neighborhoods should notice something weird about us as Christians. They should be able to look at you and go, wow, this person is ridiculously committed to being with their church. They're unflappable. In, in John 17, Jesus prays that through our relationships with each other, that the world would know him. I hope that whatever this practically looks like for you, your non-Christian friends would get a glimpse of Christ's love by seeing how much you are willing to sacrifice so that your church family 
would remember every week the hope they have in Jesus. And oh, that we might look like him, that we would look like Jesus, the one who endured the greatest risk, the greatest suffering and persecution, that he might point us toward the goal, that he might keep us unswervingly on the path so that we can be with him and we can be like him as we look toward the day when he will make all things new. So friends, I I hope this is encouraging. Jesus has gathered us so we can spur each other on because he's so committed to us remembering our focus, remembering where we're going, and remembering that things will be okay. Not only that, no, things will be amazing. They will be eternally good because God has redeemed the future and we're heading that way. So I want you to remember that this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we are in awe this morning of the lengths that you would go to rescue us from the chaos of our own doing, the brokenness of this world as a result of sin and our own choice to try and do things our own way. Uh, This is a difficult text for us this morning because for many of us, we really do want to gather, um, but there's so many implications. Lord, may we not abandon each other. Whatever it looks like for us to not give up meeting together, Lord, may we not abandon each other. May we show up where it matters in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters here in Christ. And that together, Lord, we'd keep our grip on the steering wheel, that we wouldn't be swerving off the road, but that we'd just be continuing en route to you and to the future hope that you have promised to us. And Lord, may we gather many on the way. Lord, you know what we need? Guide our hearts as we focus on you and pray about these things. Pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, thank you for, again, for joining us this morning, uh, virtually or here at Hillside Church. Um, We're glad that you did. Um, As you go, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May his countenance be turned towards you. May he bring you peace.